Good morning. You know, we get this fancy new podium so that you can see through and you can tell, you know, well, Mike Hicks and dressed Jared today. And uh, right before services, I realized I forgot to get the microphone. So there goes that. Uh, so good to be together. As I look out, you know, it's always exciting to be able to be together as the Lord's people and with, with all the, the drama we've gone in, on with through the past and all the, the time that we were separated, it sure is good to be together. Now this morning, as was just read, we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. If you remember the last time that I was up here a few weeks ago or a couple months ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 18 as we considered Christ who was breaking down the partition breaking down the, the wall between the two different groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. We talk about all the different things that are going on in the world, and yet Jesus brings people together. Well, last time when I was working on this sermon, I said, you know, I really wish I could go through verse 22, but uh, there was no way that time was going to allow it. So, I decided that we'll pick up in verse 19, we're going to finish Ephesians chapter 2 today as we look at the family of God. Now, as, as I thought through this lesson and considered the family of God, you might also call it the building of God within the, the realm in which we consider the church today. God often pointed to the church as a building. Now, that is not the same sense in which we talk about an auditorium where we get together and this is the church, which would be absolutely incorrect. Uh, this is the church's building. Uh, it belongs to the Lord. We use it for the purpose of coming together. But yet, when God talks about the church being the individuals, He often refers to the individuals as a building. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look exactly at that as we consider the family of God. Now, as we begin, the first part's going to kind of link back to what we looked at in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. But we're going to begin today looking at the citizens of the family and who those citizens are. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. So as we consider today the citizens of the family, who are they, what are they, what do they do? Verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we start out and he says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Now, when he's talking here in Ephesians chapter 2, what he's talking to is that group. Remember, we talked about last time that partition between the two groups. You had Jews. And you had Gentiles or Jews and Greeks. You had Jews versus the world. As you consider the Jews, here in verse 19, he's talking to those that were, weren't part of the covenant. They weren't part of the children of Israel. They were outside of God's chosen people. Now, as you look in verse 19, he says, there were those who were foreigners and strangers, and he makes reference to those. Those are us. Uh, Without having that, that seed line that ties you back into the seed of David, into the, into the family of the children of Israel, without that seed line, without that proof, uh, that would make you not part. 
But yet, in verse 19, he says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. So once upon a time, we would be, have been considered strangers, but he said, you no longer are. When you consider the citizens of the family, they were outside the covenant relationship. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, who once were not a people, but now the people of God. You know, we have, as individuals, we have people that weren't part of it, they weren't in the select group. They weren't in the, the seed line of Israel, although we were going to be blessed by the seed line of Israel. We weren't born into the family. He said, those who are not a people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now what? We have obtained mercy, and that ultimately being through Christ. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue, you can go back and remember verse 12, which we looked at last time when we spoke. He says, that at a time you were without Christ. What were they? They were aliens, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Christ in the world. So as you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, we see this separation. We see how there were those that were outside of the relationship with God. They were outside of the building of God and yet they're going to be brought in. They're at the end of verse 19. So he says, but instead, he said, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you have those that were outside, and now they're going to be drawn in. They're inside that covenant relationship. I think back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 19, uh, God says, uh, as, as you're talking there, you've got... Abraham, it says, now Sarah, your wife will bear a son. You shall call his name Isaac. And then he continues on with the covenant. He says, I'll establish my covenant with you or with him for an everlasting covenant and his descendants. You know, we see the, the promise made back in Genesis chapter 3 as, as the seed of Christ was going to be a death blow to Satan. You get down to around verse 14 and 15. You go back and you can look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, where the, the promise was made that in them, in, in him, in Abraham, all nations would be blessed. Talking about the seed of Christ coming about. You can look at Jeremiah chapter 2 and th 32 and verse 40, and we see the, the covenant reestablished, brought forth once again how that we have this covenant, how these people would have the Christ come, the everlasting covenant for those who are the descendants. So in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 19, first off he talks about the strangers and foreigners, those that were outside of the family. And then he says that they're tied in with the saints and the members of the household of God. Now understanding within God's design, when Christ came and they began to teach in Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and verse 47, it says, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name, beginning... At Jerusalem. So God went to his people first. The children of Israel got the opportunity, but yet then it went to the world. Everyone was able to be blessed. Everyone was able to enjoy the relationship with God. And so no matter where you came from, people could be inside the covenant relationship through Christ. And what we're talking about is that one family of God. Look at verse, the end of verse 19. He says, members of the household 
of God. He doesn't say of the households of God, but rather there is one group that is established. As we go further in the lesson, we'll understand that one group is the church. Now, it is the church here and it is the church worldwide. It is those that are following and putting first the commands of the Lord. Within that one family of God, we've got to understand that we were brought up through the covenant. As you go back to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, they, they look back through the account in Hebrews chapter 13, look back through the old law and how the covenant transpired. And you get down to verse 20 and 21, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead and great shepherd of our sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we see that they're brought up through the covenant. As you have that everlasting covenant, it brings us up till now to where we have hope in Christ Jesus. As you consider that one family of God, that one family of God is brought together through the resurrection of Christ. Through that resurrection of Christ, it ultimately points to the fact that we too can be resurrected. Why? Because it was part of the promise. You go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, we see as, preacher, as Peter there is preaching, he explains, this one whom you have crucified is risen. Why? Why is that important? Because it points to the prophecies of old that said that he would be risen. And as they were resurrected, it shows that those who are in the family of God today can have hope of the resurrection. So now, how do, how do I exist in this family? How is it that I can be in a family when I was not born there? I can't trace my roots to the children of Israel. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, he explains the process. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, you get to be a part of the family by God's design through the adoption that takes place. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, within the religious world, there's a lot of, a lot of different thoughts on what predestined is. But if you look in predestined here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, it's very clear in what is the predestined part. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, having predestined us. Now, he's talking to Christians, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Remember the everlasting covenant that we've been talking about? The everlasting covenant was so that the world could be blessed through the seed of Christ. All right, the predestining that takes place in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 would not be possible for it to be uh, God going down a checklist and says, well, you're going to go to heaven, you're not, you are, you aren't. It wouldn't be possible that it could be the case in fitting with Scripture because God gives us things we ought to do. But what is predestined? The us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 is written to Christians. Within God's predestined plan, within the everlasting covenant, we're not talking about one that was made up. We're not talking about one that was a second 
second thought when God's like, oh no, Adam and Eve sitting in the garden, what do I do? It wasn't the case. God had a everlasting covenant. God had a design where he knew that man needed hope and Christ could be that hope. So in Ephesians chapter one and verse five, he predestined the church, he predestined the plan that the church could be saved through Jesus Christ by adoption into his family. So having predestined us, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God had a design in place so that you could be saved. How is it that God would continue to refer to, well, in James chapter 5, verse uh, 19 and 20, you see a person that fell away who was a Christian and has to be turned back again. Well, if they were able to fall away, then the checklist doesn't follow. Understanding then that the church was God's predestined plan. Today, as we talk about the family of God, we're going to get in to the building of God in the next three verses. Ultimately, within God's design, with being adopted into the family, well, we've mentioned 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. It was our verse, I believe, three weeks ago, maybe four. I don't know. I'm not real good at dates. But anyways, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, what? If we keep his commandments. Within God's design, being a part of that family requires obedience. Now as you go back to the beginning of verse 19, it talks about strangers and sojourners there in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, in the world today, we're no longer the strangers or sojourners that it's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 because we're not outside the relationship of Christ. We're not outside of that relationship being born into the church. However, in a sense, today we still are strangers and foreigners and travelers. You know, within, within that of the church... Where do we go to, or within that of living upon earth, where do we go to, to home? You know, we've got a place that we call home, and, you know, there's a, there's a bed there that's got my pillow, and it's got my blankets. I mean, I've been to a hotel before, and let me tell you, a hotel is not home. Their pillows are uncomfortable. My wife always takes her own pillow. I'm scared to death I'll leave mine. You go to a hotel, they've got their pillows, they've got their blankets, they've got their uncomfortable bed, and usually they've got a good hot shower. If they don't, I wouldn't be there. All right, you've got... Our home, which has a comfortable bed, wasn't long ago my wife said ours was uncomfortable, so we had to go get another one. You got a comfortable bed, you got a comfortable pillow, you got comfortable blankets, you know, you've got the, the dog there that you know that's protecting the house, and, and everything is just a-okay because it's home. Well, as Christians, home is what? It's not here. Home is where we're heading. We're on a journey to go home. You know, I've, we sing multiple songs. We're marching to Canaan's land. Or, uh, we're, we're going on. We're, our plan is for a better place to Zion, lovely Zion. You know, we sing many songs that talk about a different home, and that home is much greater than here. You know, right here, we're here for a time. But home that awaits us is where we go and we reside. And so we look forward to our home in eternity. I think of Psalms chapter 119 and verse 19. The psalmist there says, I am a stranger in the earth. You know, as he's here, he's just 
traveling through. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, he said, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He says, this isn't your home. You know, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, For our citizenship, my home is in heaven, no rent to pay. All right, where is our citizenship? It's not here. Our home is somewhere far away. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. At the resurrection, where we see that Christ was resurrected, we look forward to the resurrection where we can go home. All right, we see the citizens of the family. We see that we're strangers. We see that we're travelers or sojourners here upon this earth. But let's notice back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, the building of God the cornerstone of our family. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, "...having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone," verse 21, "...in whom the whole building, being fitly joined together, grows into the holy temple in the Lord." Within that cornerstone of the family, we've got to notice first that there's a foundation that Christians are built upon. You know, in, in verse 20 there, it says that that foundation is, includes that of the apostles and the prophets. Well, we know who their apostles are, and as we consider that, you know, we're like, well, they were, they were great people, great part of the church, but ultimately we know that Christ is the chief cornerstone after this, but yet we're still built upon that foundation, so who is it referring to? If you drop down to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, notice that it says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. I'm in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5. Which was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Now a lot of people might first think when you read Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, they might think, oh yeah, we've got the apostles of today, or we've got the apostles of the first century, and then we've got the prophets throughout history. You know, you go back, I believe we talked about the prophets today in Bible class in the auditorium from what I heard. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, all these others, these prophets that they, they made reference to what is to come, but in Ephesians chapter 2, the apostles and prophets is not referring to those prophets of old. As you look at verse 5, at the very end, he said it has been revealed to, it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. When did it take place? In verse 5, it says, which in other ages, so something took place in the past, was not made known to the sons of men as it has or is now, has now been revealed. And we're talking about the the foundation on which the church is built, he was talking about the prophets of that day. The first century prophets tied in with the apostles is the, is the apostles and prophets on which the church is built upon. Now, when you consider this, understand that we don't have all these recordings, but you know, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 makes reference to, teaches a lot about miracles, in fact. And if you begin in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 and 2, he says what? He says, desire prophecy. Desire that they would be able to prophesy. 
Now, the difference is a lot of people wanted to speak in tongues because I'll tell you what, you speak in tongues and people are like, woo, that's fancy. Did you see him? He's talking in Spanish. He's never even, never even spoken that language. He's never met a Spanish person before or a Spanish-speaking person. All right. So in, in that day and time, there was a problem because everybody's like, well, I wish I could speak in tongues because that's super cool. And yet he says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 and 2, he says, desire that you can prophesy. Why? Because there was greater purpose in it. Speaking on God's behalf for the admonishment of the church as he went and he encouraged all others. You go through 1 Corinthians 14 or you can actually step back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and you, you see the different gifts that they had, but yet it's important, the ability to prophesy as they were able to speak on God's behalf. When you didn't have God's word to sit down and study from, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody that could speak inspired by the Holy Spirit on God's behalf? Absolutely. Today, I'm thankful we have God's Word. We have the opportunity to study. Each one of us, we don't have to wait for somebody to come with a new revelation. We don't have to wait for somebody to, to come being inspired by the Holy Spirit, but rather we can just speak what the Holy Spirit already spoke. And so, therefore, we can know what we do is correct. So, the foundation that the family is built upon is the apostles and the prophets of the first century. You know, in John chapter 16 and verse 13, we see that they were guided by the Spirit. What are we talking about? We're talking about inspiration. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. Jesus was, was telling them, like, look, you're going to be taken care of. You don't have to just guess at what you tell people to, to do. You don't have to guess at tell pe to encourage people to become a member of the church and make up some fanciful way for them to be a part, but rather they were going to be inspired. Referring to that spirit, he says, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. So within that foundation, we see the first century built upon the first century prophets and apostles, but yet the bigger piece of the pie, the bigger piece of the puzzle, the chief cornerstone at the end of verse 20, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Understanding within a house, you know, uh, we're trying to figure out how to build a house right now, but as you go through that process, you've got to start somewhere, okay? That first corner is the most important one. Why? Because everything is built off of it. If you don't have that starting section, how do you get all the curves and the angles and everything set up? Well, understanding that, chief, that the chief cornerstone in this day was ultimately the biggest piece of the, the, the puzzle. It was the biggest piece of starting the building process. And so when they got it set just perfect, you would have the good foundation for a building that could stand. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. You know, this was, was prophesied long ago. You go back to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. It says that's the foundation. Now that, that prophecy that takes place in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16 is fulfilled and it's pointed back to on many different occasions. Go back to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, when we get down to verse 12, you'll recognize, I'm sure it was one of our verses not too long ago. At least I believe it was. It's hard to remember exactly which ones we did, but I'm pretty sure it was one of them. 
is Acts chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel. Now, this is Peter. Sorry, I meant to say this is Peter as he's addressing the Sanhedrin. As he's addressing the Sanhedrin council, you've got these, let's say, judicial figures. Uh, you've got these important people in their society making decisions. And uh, verse 10, he says, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel by the, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you holy. He's talking about himself. Now catch verse 11. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone, the most important building block of the church. And so here as we look at, at his design, as he makes the plea, he says, this was him, this was Christ. No matter what you say is going to bring it down. God's the one that established this cornerstone. And so he says in verse 12, which I believe was our memory verse, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Where do you find salvation? In Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. Not only do we see the fulfilled prophecy here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10 and through 12, but we also see it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. But we've got lots of stuff to get through, so we're going to hurry up. You can go back to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. The foundational statement of the church is made by Peter, and Jesus says, upon... This rock, the statement where he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Upon this rock I will build my church. He says, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. As you look at, as you look at the design, we see the foundation, Jesus Christ, who will be absolutely victorious. So we've got the foundational understanding statement that Jesus was the Christ. And notice in verse 21, here we are, the building blocks. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. To, grows into the, that's it. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. All right. Now you go back to verse 18. Now therefore you... Now that same you that's being spoken of in verse 19 is the you that's being referred to in verse 21 when he's talking about Christians in whom the whole building being fitly joined together. You know, within a house, as you, uh, as you build it, I did a little construction, went to school for construction, but, you know, you've got, you've got gaps sometime. If you cut it too short, there's a gap. But yet, when you've got something that is done correct and you see it well fitted together, you don't have to come back and, and caulk the trim where you messed up. Rather, it just fits snugly. And you know the difference between a house that is well built, that everything was cut correct, that fits correct, and one that was a quickly put together shoddy work building is that you got a lot more chance of the shoddy one falling. It's not going to last as long as one that is fitly put together. And when God talks about the church, he said we were fitted together. We were, you know, it's shimmed. Everything fits just so-so. Everything fits perfect. Talking about Christians, he says, in whom the whole building being fitted together. Many members make up that temple 
that's being referred to, that building that's being referred to. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, making reference to the, the same account, set, or to the same idea of a building. He says, you as lively or living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to hover up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, you as living stones make up this building that God's creating. So you go down to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 and we see that temple is literally the house of God. It's God's people. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 there, Paul's writing to encourage Timothy he says, but if I'm delayed, he said, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So there's a way in which you ought to conduct, and there's a way, obviously, in which you ought not to conduct. And he wrote, why? So you could live like a Christian. And so today we have the holy word of God, which gives us the proper way to live to ensure a home in heaven. Man, time goes quick. All right, you think about Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. What are we talking about? We're talking about the words of Christ. Matthew 24 and verse 35 says, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, if we're going to be judged by the word of God, John chapter 12 and verse 48, and we're going to have to, have to live or, or live as part of this church of God, we no doubt want to be obedient to his words. In 1 Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, the building blocks are known by God. How are they known by God? They're known by God by whether or not they're obedient to God's words. First, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. Notice, the Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. God knows those who choose to follow Him. So we see Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, his words won't pass away, so therefore we ought to be faithful. We need to be faithful to God as part of the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, I'm going to have to start skipping verses. Skipping verses. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And he says, which temple you are. So we as a people made up the, make up the building blocks for where God can reside. And so finally, let's get down to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22. And notice our last point, the campaign of the family. We started out, we looked at the citizenship. We looked at the, the group that makes up the family. We noticed the, the cornerstone of family being Jesus Christ, us being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself. And finally, we'll see the campaign, the work that we've got to do. Anytime you look at a, anytime you look at a family, anytime you look at a building, anytime you look at God's word, we've got to understand what about me? What's my part? How does it relate to what I do in life? All right. Campaign of the family, verse 22. It says, in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All right. Take care of yourself. He says, you are the building in which God resides. You know, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. We're talking about sacrificing of self. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about God who lives in me. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable for you to be willing to do at least 
this, meaning we ought to be excited to give our lives for Him because He literally made heaven possible for you. Go ahead. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, For we are God's fellow workers. He says, You are God's field. You are God's building. Our ownership is we belong to God. It's not, what, it's not about us owning anything, but rather we are the sacrificing people. We give our lives to Him as the only reason we have life today is because of Him or through Him. So notice as we talk about sacrificing self, we've got to realize that we are the sanctuary of the Savior. So therefore, we want to be pure for the Lord. I want the Lord to be pleased when He comes home. Remember I talked about the hotel, I talked about home, you got the comfortable bed. You got the comfortable pillow, you got uh, the comfortable everything. Everything's just like you like it. If you don't like it, you change the house. It's like, well, you know, I don't like that recliner anymore. So you go buy one. All right, why? Because you want to be comfortable at home. We're talking about the campaign of the family. God needs to be comfortable in you. And if he's not, then you're not what you ought to be. The whole point was that we've got to get iniquity out. We've got to separate ourselves from sin. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, talking about the idols versus God, he says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Remember that God has no dwelling with that of sin. If sin is an active part of your life, then God is not dwelling in you. Without God dwelling in you, you have no member of the church relationship. You have no salvation that's enjoyed in Christ. So therefore, what's that mean? Let not wickedness reign in us. Let not sin be the ruler of our life, but rather make ourselves so that God desires me. You know, you go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22. We see that building that's fitted together in verse 21. God dwells in the building that's built up for Him, made up of Christians. You know, as we think about God, He says, they shall be my people. What makes them the, His people? People that chose to obey. As we think about Christ, as we think about God's design, God doesn't dwell with iniquity. You can go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 19, let everyone know that he who names the name of Christ departs from iniquity. If we're to be a Christian, we've got to have a better way of life. And ultimately, we've got to understand that as Christ or God dwells in us, it's because we've made ourselves what we ought to be. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, super close by. Just a chapter over. Verse 17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. All right, we've got God dwelling in you through faith, grounded in love. Well, how's that faith come that, that we can have God dwell in us? You know, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Hebrews chapter eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. You know, within God's design, he says he dwells in us in faith, through love. 
within the Christian life, God's, God's design for the Christian to love. Not just each other, not just the people you like, but to love all. To do good to all. We see faith grounded in love, the building block for the church. The building of God. Finally, notice Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. It says, For Christ, in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Within God's design, Christians have a greater purpose than the entire world. Within our goal, we need to be living for God every day. That's our campaign. It's our job to do. Living in that way, we can stand assured we've got God living in us, that we've got hope through God, and ultimately we are a part of that fitted house which makes up the house of God. Within God's design, we've got to live in a different way than the world. We're sacrificing ourselves. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I ask of you, why not? You know, you don't enjoy the blessings of being in the family of God without giving your life to God. I mentioned Acts chapter 2 as he talked about the resurrection, how that Christ was resurrected and we have hope of resurrection. And in Acts chapter 2, it got to the people because they realized we did kill the Christ. This is the one that was prophesied of. This is the foundation of the church. And this is the hope for mankind. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, no hope without God, no hope. But yet we find hope in the adoption in the family of God. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, they realized they were pricked in their hearts. They realized we messed up. We killed the Christ. We've done the worst thing possible. And he said, hey, listen here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had hope once again. Today, if you haven't been living for Christ, you can have hope. You can be a part of the church, the building of God, wherein God resides and wherein there is great blessings. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I ask you, why not? Are you willing to turn from sin? Look, to be a part of that building, you have to get sin out of your life. It's no different after you're a Christian. You have to continue to keep sin out of your life. You don't let sin reign in your life, but rather you're living for Him. So we're willing to turn from sin. We're willing to Tell the world, look, I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my king. He's the one in whom I give my life. I'm a servant of his. I'm a, I'm a part of his building. And so ultimately, not only do we want to stop there, but as we, we, as we put our faith in him and we repent and we make the great confession and we tell the world day in and day out, man, Jesus Christ is the hope for the world. We're going to also have the desire to be immersed. We're going to say, you know what? I want the remission of sins that's spoken of in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. I want the hope of heaven that's spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. And I want to give my life to Christ so that I can have a future. If you haven't given your life to Christ, you don't have a future. But I beg of you, make the change today because the future is bright. If you haven't given your life to Christ, please come as we stand and sing.